Hello, this is Robert P. Otone, author of Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares, and you are listening to the HP Lovecast Podcast. And welcome to episode 37 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker nominated Horror in Space, as well as James Bond and Popular Culture. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. For today's episode, we'll be discussing two short stories from The Trail of Cthulhu, written by August Derelith. Those stories are The House on Curran Street and The Watcher from the Sky. But before we start, uh, we'll be giving a brief uh, bio of August Derelith, along with his influence and a little bit of his controversy with the Cthulhu mythos. August Derelith was a Wisconsin author and editor, perhaps best known for creating Arkham House, a publisher that released and gave life to a variety of weird and horror authors such as Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, Frank Belcamp Long, Robert Block, and many others. Derelith was a friend and correspondent of Lovecraft, and he coined the phrase Cthulhu Mythos in an attempt to structuralize Lovecraft's work. After Lovecraft died, Derelith wrote his own Lovecraftian stories, often using fragments Lovecraft had originally written. These stories would be released via Arkham House and, more or less, paved the way for successor authors to write in Lovecraft vein. Derelith passed away in 1971, but left a vast and influential legacy behind via not only his own work, but with Arkham as well which helped pave the careers of many other writers, such as Ramsey Campbell and, of course, our favorite, Gary Myers. August Derleth, I, I think his importance for all things kind of Lovecraft is pretty pretty underscored. I mean, Arkham House accomplished a lot, and he did as well, but there seems to be a lot of a little bit of uh, internal genre controversy about him and his attempts to, well, structuralize uh, Lovecraft. Um, there was a post on a Facebook page pretty recently that was kind of a quotation taken from David E. Schultz from way back in 1986 for his essay, Who Needs the Cthulhu Mythos? And I think it kind of sums up what the feelings were, at least way back in the way back about Derelith. Uh, it goes, quote, Derelith's unflagging 40-year campaign for a Cthulhu mythos has had far-reaching consequences. In reference books, Lovecraft is inevitably dubbed the inventor of the Cthulhu mythos, what Derelith called Lovecraft's crowning achievement. Lovecraft deserves better recognition than that. Derelith may have thought he was doing Lovecraft the dubious favor of assigning a name to and structuralizing, and even completing, what he erroneously assumed to be the most significant aspect of Lovecraft's work, and then stepping aside to let Lovecraft bask in the glory of the recognition of his creation. This action has done more harm than good. Lovecraft's stories offer much more than exotic extraterrestrial and occult books. They challenge us to consider the world in which we live in in light of what science has told us about it. 
to wrestle with the ambiguous or downright incorrect terms, and concepts foisted upon Lovecraft by a well-meaning but misguided admirer of his work is to waste our time and to allow ourselves to be distracted from the grander vistas open to us in Lovecraft stories. Let us lay the unwieldy mythos aside and go directly to Lovecraft's works if we mean to behold the scenes he envisioned. End quote. Uh, again, that was written, what, mid-80s there? You know, this is after uh, Lynn Carter, after August Derleth. Um, and I, I think a lot of folks have adopted um, this this feeling that Lovecraft, uh, not Lovecraft, Derleth has done wrong. Uh, I sometimes see it kind of condensed down to he brought a good versus evil aspect to Lovecraft stuff, that he got rid of the ambiguousness of Bit, whatever <laughs> of it you know that that these elder gods or great old ones or whatever you want to call in in lovecraft's world you know they don't care about humans we're insignificant specs to them and here's derelith kind of change challenging that um so present day this is i I feel it's kind of irrelevant. That's kind of the point of our podcast here is looking at at all these successor and derivative works. You know what what Derelith was doing back in the 40s and 50s, Chaosium was doing in the late 70s and early 80s. It was all platforming a Lovecraft stuff. Yeah, they attempted to maybe structuralize it, get stuff together that normally wasn't compatible together together, but in the present day and age, no one really follows that stuff anyway. As we have have seen through many of our podcast readings, people are going to take what they want from Lovecraft and do their own thing, which, as we've seen, has been for the best. You know, it scrubs away some of the xenophobia, scrubs away some of the racism, and they take it into more, you know, inventive avenues. Yeah, I would agree with that. I And I think that that's what is... If anything, the strength, the strength about H.P. Lovecraft's work is the fact that it is such a vast sandbox. and Foundational. And it's foundational. Um, so that way, any person can come in and write their own story. I mean, that's something that I really, really like about it. And the fact that it is a way to hear other voices that we wouldn't have heard otherwise. We get to read different interpretations, derivative interpretations. We get to hear voices of women and other marginalized individuals that get to have their, their spotlight in a, a cosmic horror universe. I think one of the kind of umbrages, you know, is the idea like, you know, Lovecraft intended this, and yeah, sure, you can go cull through all of Lovecraft's letters and whatnot and try to infer what he's intending, but, you know, the bottom line is, there's still a mythos here. Maybe Derelith, you know, structuralized it and gave it the formal name, but you don't write this body of work with interconnected characters, fictionalized locations, deities, and other bestiary things. If you aren't creating... If not a mythos, you know, still an imagined world with very specific ways of how that world is governed. Um, it, it's a mythos. You know, Derelith may have coined the term, but, you know, you can look at Lovecraft stuff. There is there is a canon there. And I think a lot of folks may, may take, you know, the role of gatekeeper to that canon. How dare you try to write your own Lovecraft story? It somehow or another retcons the canon. And it, it doesn't. Uh, if anything, again, it expands, it adds, it builds to it. Uh, I think another way to kind of express, I think, our kind of uh, uh, opinion of it is through a, 
<laughs> longtime uh, person of our show, Gary Myers, who we we adore. Um, I did an article about Gary and his short story, House of the Worm, a couple years ago for Dead Reckonings. And this story had seen a lot of different iterations over the years. And I'd asked him about one of the changes that he'd done in it. And I think it kind of sums up where our present state of, really, no one cares anymore. So, quote, In those days, the Derlithian model of the Cthulhu mythos, a name Derlith coined, was still dominant. This has been characterized by a quasi-Christian struggle of good against evil. That is probably an oversimplification, but he, but the effect is still the same. If Cthulhu breaks free from his watery tomb, some greater entity appears and seals him back up again. Either way, it has little to do with the Lovecraftian model, which is bleaker, more hopeless affair. I think I must always have sensed this difference, and when the Lovecraftian writer Richard L. Tierney published an article laying it out in black and white, I was bowled over by its obvious truth. In direct response to Tierney's article, I recast the mytho mythological background of my own story to reflect my new understanding, wrote an introduction to justify what I've done, and included it in my 1975 collection. So far, so good. But when, some 20 years later, I had occasion to revisit the book, two things struck me. One was that the derelict controversy was over and done. And the other was that rewriting I had done in the service of that controversy did not fit my story. So I restored it, and as I said before, to something closer to its original Derlithian form. My vast reading public did not lose much by this. My mythological innovations can still be read to better effect in a story called The Snout in the Alcove, but I had learned a valuable lesson. You could change a story for artistic reasons, and all will be well, but if you change it for didactic ones, you do so at your own peril. And... Again, you know, uh, uh, Gary Myers took took his story, revised it to be more true Lovecraftian, then revised it back to a August Derelith model, and even says his general public didn't care. And I, not, not, and I don't want to, you know, talk down on the general public. I don't mean that way, but I think for the most part, we don't care. Uh, we we want a good story. We want to be entertained. Um, uh, Schultz, you know, says that Lovecraft was trying to accomplish X, Y, and Z. One of the things people gloss over is, first and foremost, these stories are also entertaining. Uh, you know, they have this carnivalesque aspect to them that, you know, you do read them to have fun. And I think nowadays with a lot of, uh, you know, derivative works, and I don't mean derivative in negative sense, we love our derivative works here, that's what we talk about on this show, is, you know, different voices accomplishing different things, and also having fun. And I think that's, you know, we just kind of need to go into the August Derelith short stories with that in mind. Uh, you know, back in the day, these may have been controversial because they tried to structuralize Lovecraft stuff, but under, you know, our lenses, today's lenses, I don't know if that's a hindrance. I don't see it as a hindrance. I see them as expansionary, and I see them as fun. Yeah, um, I think this opens up... Uh or actually reveals that that's the nature of scholastic dialogue um, and just kind of a general discourse about different franchises out there because H.P. Love, Lovecraft is a franchise. It is a, a particular IP of its, of its own. And as we've seen, uh, for example, James Bond, uh, through, through the many decades, 
for it used to be that you know Sean Connery was always going to be the number one Bond and as we've seen over the intervening um, decades Connery is still held in in regard in high regard I think but as each subsequent decade it was George Lazenby that was a horrible uh, James Bond. Then it was, you know, pr then... Uh, Roger Moore. Ro Sir Roger Moore. His his performance of the spy was problematic. Then it shifted to Timothy Dalton. Now it's in the Pierce Brosnan phase where, you know, his his portrayal is problematic. Eventually we'll, we'll see uh, Daniel Craig. But the point is that... The discourse changes, it evolves, it, it, it becomes and grows and expands. And what at that particular moment is important, eventually the tide shifts, the discourse shifts. And it's not discounting anything from earlier as much as building and adding, creating new understanding and new insight. And I think as we get into these stories... One of the things that we'll talk about um, is also understanding the time in which something was written and how that impacts that writing and how we do have to, as scholars, keep that in mind as we are looking at various stories, that they are product of their time. Um, yes, they, they require discourse to mediate and understand them, but that... Um, that well shift in time just like today nick and i are talking about about the discourse that'll change over time just as we've seen with schultz and um what we'll see in the coming years and decades so lovecraft james bond godzilla star trek star wars <laughs> you know they all have their canon they all have their core stories they all have their spin-offs they all have their uh fan fiction they all have these intricate parts and, you know, it's fun to dive into, you know, all these, you know, fandoms, texts, uh, you know, I think, you know, derelicts is a way to try to, to structuralize it and to make sense of it. Us film scholars, we do the same thing. You know, if there's a body of a work for a director, we attempt to put it in auteur theory. Is it the best theory to evaluate someone's work? Not necessarily, but in our way to understand a text, a way to interact with a, a text. We structuralize it, compartmentalize it, put it into categories, genres, different ways to, to slice it up. And as long as you kind of, you know, support that, you know, through other readings, other texts, other scholarship, I think you're going to do okay. And you know what? After reading these two stories from August Derleth, they've got issues. I had fun reading them. I think he did okay. I would agree with that. And on that note, uh, should we shift over to our first short story? And that would be The House on Curran Street. House on Curran Street, originally published in March 1944 of Weird Tales. Andrew Fillan is an out-of-work dude searching for his next employment opportunity. Seeing such in a newspaper, he takes off to Arkham and onto Curran Street to be interviewed by Dr. Laban Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury is an interdimensional, interplanetary occult hero who travels around blowing up gates that Cthulhu may someday wake up and pass through. And he needs a secretary of sorts, someone to transcribe notes, run to the library, perform errands, 
act as a bodyguard, and be drugged if a magic mead that renders their drinker into some odd state that allows them to traverse space and time and fight evil. Felon is the man for the job. Uh, kinda. He doesn't really know all the fine details about monsters and occult things, but still, a paycheck is a paycheck. So, Felin and Dr. Shrewsbury's first adventure, they go down to South America, uh, they go down to Peru, and they blow up an underwater lake in a hill. Uh, Felin thinks this is a dream, he thinks a lot of his stuff is a dream, they're, hint, they're not really dreams, that's just the influence of this magic mead. Their second major adventure has them travel to England to interview a mysterious man speaking in a Cthulian language. Then they fly to an island and attempt to blow up a door that has a monster emerging from it. The story concludes, though, with Shrewsbury taking refuge on a far star of Calanio. Felin attracts the ire of the Cthulhu cult, and using the incantations provided by Shrewsbury, joins him far out into space. <laughs> by the way, there are spoilers. <laughs> I, I glossed over all the, you know, the, the minutiae here to, you know, to, to make fun. I, it sounds like I'm being a little sarcastic with the story. I'm not. I'm actually having fun because it is kind of an absurd story, you know, uh, there was that movie that came out about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, and it started with an ad saying, like, you know, time traveler wanted, you know, we'll travel back in time, safety not guaranteed. I think that's what the movie was called, safety not guaranteed. Never saw it, but just, just you know, the, the synopsis of that film makes me think of how the house on Kerwin Street starts. You know, it should, the ad should have read, wanted interdimensional time traveler to fight occult evil. Safety not guaranteed. Well, that's the, the 2000 version. <laughs> <laughs> so, first things first, because, you know, again, I sound like I was making fun of the story. I'm not, because I had a lot of fun with the story. This was a fun story, so I figured, you know, the synopsis should reflect that kind of funness with it, and a little bit of its absurdity. So, Michelle, thoughts? What did you think of the story? Good, bad, indifferent? Um, I actually enjoyed it, uh, in large part because of the inclusion of more action sequences, um, and the idea of using cosmic creatures for quick travel to a variety of locales um, seems kind of fun. Um, particularly that magic mead that only takes like a drop uh, to render you kind of in this dream state, I thought was rather interesting. Um, I also thought that the idea of Dr. Shrewsbury traveling around to foil Cthulhu's waking, um, an interesting one. I thought it was pretty entertaining. Um, well, I think he's basically in a. He's not. I don't think he's a detective, you know, in the traditional sense. He's a professor, but I think he's supposed to fit that mold of the occult detective that was kind of popular back in the pulp era. I think what Seabury Quinn had his own uh, occult detective, and nowadays yes. we have. Uh, uh, Karnacki, I think it is. We've never read it. I take that back. We've read one Karnacki story. I think it was in a James Chambers. No, it wasn't. It was in a Glacky compilation. You know what? They had, there was a Glacky versus Karnacki. Regardless, there there's this tradition of the quote-unquote occult detective, and not necessarily detective, but, you know, philosopher, uh, professor, whatever, that knows just enough that they're going to travel around and fight evil. And that's what Shrewsbury is. And that traditional mold and I, I think he's awesome he's, he's an old guy kicking butt <laughs> and i agree i i like the story as well it's got 
issues, as both these stories do, but it has this, it scratches this itch of a very old-school-style Lovecraft story. It, it definitely captures the tone of Lovecraft. I mean, Derelith is trying to write not just, you know, a successor story to Lovecraft, he's actually trying to emulate, you know, language and prose, and... I don't know if he 100% succeeded, but I think he succeeded enough that if this if you'd crossed off Derelith's name and put Lovecraft's name on it, I probably would have been fooled. I probably would have said, "Wow, this is this is a Lovecraft story that's a bit more action oriented where the characters do not faint." Maybe he's evolving a bit in his writing. Um yeah, I would agree. Uh there's no fainting in this story. Uh, <laughs> and, and the next one that we'll talk about, no yes. fainting at all. No fainting. Because if you faint, you can't have action sequences. Well, that's true. And so our our heroes uh kept their eyes open and uh throughout the entire, well, for the most part, although I guess feeling, you know, with that that mead. Hey, that stuff was still going on. So so there's still yeah. action sequences. He he's not asleep. He is dreaming quote-unquote. Right. Um, I actually, you know, I I think that uh, Derelith's uh, prose definitely very much in the style of Lovecraft's writing. And I thought, um, for me, it provided kind of a sense of nostalgia for all the stories that we've read of, of uh, Lovecraft's over the, the past number of years. Well, there's a lot of cameos in this. Even mm-hmm. if they're just yeah. one offhanded mentions of other deities, there's there's entire paragraphs where basically Derelict just lists, lists off a whole bunch of gods that appeared in other Lovecraft stories. Oh yeah, there was there's Cthulhu and this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and you know, depending on your proficiency with the mythos, it it could accomplish a couple things if you if you've read a lot of Lovecraft, you pick up on those cameos. You're like, yeah, right on, cool, that's neat. Or, or alternatively, you're one of these structuralists or anti-structuralists that say, why are you adding all these gods together in one story? How dare you? Lovecraft didn't attend that. Or in a third case, if you're not familiar with all these deities, that puts you more in the role of of our main character, Philan, who has never heard of these either, and you're just being bombarded with, what are these things? Now, luckily for Michelle and I, we've got, like, Sandy Peterson's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and a whole bunch of other stuff, so we can rapidly look up the stuff and say, oh, yeah, that's what that god looked like. Oh, that's what the winged beasts look like that they ride on. Very cool. Yeah, so uh, those are positives. Those are positives. <laughs> uh, definitely liked, liked uh, the, you know, cameos of locations, uh, characters, uh, monsters. However, <laughs> however, however, um, I feel that this story, and we will, I'm sure, discuss this in the second story, there was an agenda involved uh, from the point of view of Derelith. And that is, of course, that what we've been discussing, his, his effort to give structure to the Cthulhu mythos. Mythlo, mythlos. Man, I'm having a day. Uh, versus really telling a new story, kind of expanding the universe, exploring it in a different way. Derelith definitely had the agenda to kind of bring all that Lovecraft stuff together and create that mythos. He has long stretches of exposition that, to me, read more like a biblical, you know, 
so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so is related to so-and-so. And I really got that sense through a lot of this first story. You know, it's when you say it that way, a uh, friend, friend of us, Howard David Ingham, uh, he's a British author who just released a new book on cult cinema. P- plug for you, Howard. You tune in and give us props for that later. He said the same thing about Lynn Carter and his Zoth Amog Zothic cycle. He basically he he told me in a, a chat one day. He's like that book is so boring. I mean, it, it basically it reads like a how-to manual of here's a god, here's a god, here's a god. So I can I can see that you know um, how how it it makes it it makes the ambiguousness into a dictionary and dispels a lot of the charm about it. Once you've referenced it and sterilized it in that way and make it read like a manual, I could, I could see where you lose a little bit of the magic. Yeah, um, that's actually, you know, putting that little spin on it does kind of make sense how it would, you'd lose a bit of the charm, but it'd also be a roadmap for people who are interested in exploring more of this world. Hopefully people would not just read Derelith, but then be encouraged to read Lovecraft as well. Um, One of the other things that I felt that part of why this agenda existed was the fact that thinking back to that period of time when when Derelith was writing, um, believe it or not world, there was not an internet during the 40s and 50s. So uh, oftentimes, and I mean, we've heard this when we've gone to the HP Lovecast, or Lovecraft uh, Film Festival, people that were getting into Lovecraft like in the 80s, they were like finding this writing in either, you know, some cubby hole in the back end of their library or through some, you know, uh, you know, little creakety old bookstore. And so I can, you know, you didn't have access to go to a computer and Wikipedia to find all these stories. And if you didn't have like old issues of Weird Tales or Lovecraft's books or Arkham House, which I don't know how much it would have cost back then, but you know, for for these books, it, you know, it's it wasn't out in mainstream. So Derelith's effort to try to structuralize and then also um, further this mythos into something more manageable for people that wouldn't have had access to some of that other material. I think, you know, so you have to take it with kind of a, you know, a grain. He, he needs to do it, but it comes at the cost of long expository paragraphs is that kind of your umbrage um no i'm not talking about the fact that there are like really long long paragraphs like lovecraft would do in order to create or kind of substantiate the monster in so much as it probably could have been done a little bit better than kind of in a list form that made it a little more laborious to read through that i think that's more what i'm getting at it's necessary evil that could have been executed better Yes, definitely. Okay. Well, I I don't have a problem with that per se. I have a problem with one aspect of that. It's a kind of a subset of that. The, the long list of stuff didn't bother me too much, but it's the mention of Lovecraft himself as a character in his own creation, which I think 
he's inserted in there to accomplish the same thing. What better way to, you know, structuralize what you're trying to do by than by putting Lovecraft in your own story? And I think that was a bad call. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you try to go a very meta route, especially in the fiction world where the the author, you know, becomes part of his own creation, sometimes it can be done very well. Uh, we look at John Carpenter's in the uh, at, in the uh, Mouth of Madness, about to say Mountains of Madness, Mouth of Madness, that great, uh, you know, film with uh, Sam Neill. Yes. Th- that, that is a great meta Lovecraft movie that uh, has a Lovecraftian setting, and the author, in this case Sutter, Sutter Kane, is a character in his own story. Mwah! Chef's kiss on that one. We previously read um, a couple podcasts uh, ago. Uh, Wonder and Glory Forever, the edited collection by Nick Mamatos, and in it was Fred Chappell's Weird Tales, which has Lovecraft as a character in it. And, you know, Chappell was trying to kind of, you know, justify, you know, these weird authors that, you know, maybe their their tales had a little bit of truth to them. In this case, he had kind of a more sciencey author tell his findings to this poet, this and unfortunately, I don't have the characters' names in front of me right now. But, you know, these are real characters. Well, not the science guy. That guy was fabrication. But the poet in real life, you know, he was uh, mm-hmm. drunk all the time. But he hung out with Lovecraft. And the idea being here that the sciencey guy told the poet, the poet told Lovecraft, and Lovecraft, through that chain, incorporated that stuff into Mountains of Madness and his other stories. And that story was brilliant. Especially for the centerpiece of when they open up the door and the guy's in the middle of Antarctica and his skull gets... Went, Go back to our prior podcast episode for that one. Um, Wonder and Glory Forever. That story was great. And I think Lovecraft in a meta role as a character within this worked perfectly. In Derelict's instance, it seems more like making a fan cameo. I'm just going to put Lovecraft in here and just call it that. I, and again, I think what he's trying to do is saying, whoa, you know, Lovecraft's writings, what a visionary, and those writings, that's real stuff. Shadow of Smith and Mountains of Madness, that really occurred. And I don't think that works in this. It doesn't accomplish what it needs to. You could have accomplish the same thing by not even having Lovecraft in there, and you keep that canon. Because to me, you can't have Shadow of Rinsmith and Mountains of Madness both be fictional and not fictional at the same time when you're establishing this Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, that's an excellent point that you can't have Lovecraft in there as the fiction, um, but then trying to substantiate him as a, a non-fiction entity. Um, I really got the sense that Derelith was making another effort to elevate Lovecraft and put him into the Cthulhu mythos. And I don't think that it works here. Like you said, I thought that it worked really well in Fred Chappell's story because he's kind of an incidental insofar as that he's part of it, but he's... He's not center stage. And it makes it, sense. That's it, the thing. Yes, the logic for his cameo in that makes sense in that story. It does. And what you get in that is kind of it, a little bit of insight into Lovecraft as an individual. His idiosyncrasies. Chapel did such a nice job pulling in kind of those... those Ticks. Ticks and, and nuances to these different individuals that were real, real people. Um, and it works there. This is, you know, 
It's just it, name it, dropping. It's just well, name dropping. Well, and not only that, but it goes to the point of, like, we were tes- discussing offline, is the fandom. Where do, you, where do you balance fandom and an expansion of universe without just, like, fanning it out? Um, and, and doing something more that doesn't just, like, give, constantly give kudos to... Lip and, service. And lip service. Yes, exactly. My only other concern with this story and it's a concern shared with the other story is i don't think derelith can write primary characters that are in the dark and we'll see this in story number two but story number one uh shrewsbury to me no issue that guy's awesome i mean he he's i think he's as well written as he can be especially from an outsider perspective now granted you know we all as readers see coming from a mile away he's wearing glasses we know he doesn't have eyes so no real surprise there but as a, a traditional occult detective even though he's not a detective occult magician dr mordred type person he's awesome he, he, he knows what he needs to do. He's mysterious, but he's very knowledgeable. He's fine. And Pe- he's credible. He's credible, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written pretty well. Pelin, Felon, I, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but the main character, he, 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 he's supposed to be in the dark, you know? And one of the requirements of this job listing is not to have an imagination, because if you have an imagination, if you're exposed to all these horrors and stuff, you'll probably go mad, so it's best to be very stoic about it. Um, but... Pelin is supposed to be in the dark for this entire story, you know, part of his own, you know, part of his own, for his own safety, but I just can't see that happening. When, when you are working for months, and this story takes place over the course of months, acting as this, uh, you know, the doctor's secretary, and I'm putting that in air quotes because he's doing so much more. He's describing stuff, they're interviewing on their other people and writing those notes down, he's running off to Miskatonic University and he's reading stuff, he's even doing his own kind of detective work now and then, um, he, but he's so dismissive of what he's seeing. And it's not that dismissive of, oh my God, this is against the laws of science. This can't possibly be happening. His dismissiveness is more of, well, I just can't comprehend this. And I just, I can't see that. I, if you work months at a time submerged in this stuff, you're going to make connections. You're going to make observations. You're going to make conclusions. You're going to start filling in your own puzzle. Will you be as smart as Dr. Shrewsbury in that time? No, not at all. But you're going to have a good chunk of the pie to start saying, you know what? There's some crazy stuff going on here. It's not just dreams I'm having. No, this stuff is really happening. Are these interviews, these uh, things I'm transcribing? There's a bigger thing here, and I'm making connections. And you know, these monsters and occult things. This, you know, when you're a conspiracy theorist, you put that map on the wall and you start doing the string to everything. We all internally do that. This is a character who should be doing that, and I think he can do it. And Derelict is for for whatever reason holding him back and keeping him in the dark and we know this is not his attribute because Pelin is the is the Shrewsbury character in story number two and he is smart he's in the know he knows what's going on yeah he spent two years in outer space learning all that stuff but it just shows that he does have an imagination he can comprehend all this stuff so this depiction in story number two is at odds with his depiction in story number one and I think I, and as we'll see in story number two, the main character suffers from the same thing of being put in the dark, and it just doesn't execute very well. So I just don't think Derelith can write characters who should be in the dark and unknowing things. 
Well, and I'm, I kept going back to, and I think this is what uh, Felon goes back to time and time again. And I think it's, it's not an it's not a credible personality trait. And that is that Felon keeps going back to the ad and where Dr. Shrewberry tells him that he's looking for somebody with limited imagination. And that seems to be what Felon keeps going back to is that, oh, you know, the ad said he should have limited imagination. And he almost uses that as a crutch to not, like, put the connections together when anybody else would be putting those connections together. And, I, and again, I think... I think he is putting those connections together. Derelith's just not showing it or holding it back. And it, to be honest, Derelith is doing a disservice to his main character. Mm -hmm. the, the Pelin that we see in story number two does that. The Pelin we see in story number one doesn't. And I, that's it's not his fault. Mm -hmm. um, in slightly more capable hands, again, I think I think 80% of the story is fun it's a great Cthulhu Lovecraftian-esque story. It's got the cameos we love. It's got characters we love. It's just these kind of blemishes, such as portrayal of the main character as being dumber than he really is, you know, um, more cameo-type stuff rather than making it more meaningful, that kind of holds the story back. Mm -hmm. I only have one other point, and that is... Um, the fact that I actually pulled this article. Now, you had the um, Trail of Cthulhu uh, paperback. From which, Ballantine, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Ballantine Books. Ballantine Books. And I uh, went through and I found um, the Weird Tales on, I think, Internet Archives. And so they had both issues of Weird Tales available. So I just want to make a comment that I do like the illustrations from Weird Tales. It was, the artist was uh, John Gunta, G-I-U-N-T-A. And so like he's got uh, Phelan grabbing his hair, the, the flying creature in the background, fishmen in the back, you know, eyeballs and... Um, I think Saturn back there too. Um, that goes across. It's the it's the the banner heading, and we've got uh, in the corner we have Doctor Shrewsbury with his uh, with his goggle glasses on. Anyway, just very cool. It's nice to always take a look at the original the original article um, and just kind of look at some of the illustrations um, because they do add a little bit to the story. So yeah. that's kind of my last point. Yeah, it's a, a shame. I believe Trail of Cthulhu is out of print. And, you know, you know, there's paperbacks floating out there. I think Amazon has, you know, old copies for sale by other vendors. And, you know, even Arkham itself doesn't even carry their versions anymore. So it's kind of it's kind of sad. I, I, I don't like it when things go out of print. But I think my last point is, uh, as you all know, one of my interests is, you know, compiling... Um, Rene Girard elements in Lovecraft. I kind of have this theory of of uh, applying Rene Girard's mimetic theory to Lovecraft that the characters in Lovecraft stories, as they learn more, they become more and more like the very cultists that they, you know, are pursuing, and in turn that leads to violence. And there is a sequence in this um, story that does reinforce that. 
um, very in the very much in the vein of the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, there's a section after the incident with Fernandez where Shrewsbury recaps other incidences. There was a London scholar who drowned, an archaeologist that had some accidental death, and even Lovecraft himself who got down of a mysterious illness. And the idea being that if your knowledge becomes mimetically similar to that of the cultists, violence will befall you. And that's kind of what's happening in both of these stories. Um, the the various, um, you know, Innsmithian critters are always chasing after Shrewsbury, Pelin, and Keen in our next story because they're getting close to the truth, they're learning stuff that they shouldn't be learning, and they're putting them in the same ballpark as these cosmic critters. And on that note, we're going to take a quick musical interlude, and we'll be back with story number two. Welcome back to part two of our discussion of August Derelith's stories. Originally published in the July 1945 issue of Weird Tales, The Watcher from the Sky could be described as Shadow over Innsmouth, part two. Andrew Phelan has returned to his lodging house on Thoreau Drive about two years later, now occupied by divinity student Abel Keene. Keene arrives home to discover Phelan laying on his bed, passed out. When Phelan wakes, readers quickly surmise that he now has a confidence that he lacked in the prior story, The House on Curran Street. Phelan and Dr. Shrewsbury have been working together in these past two years since his disappearance, and Phelan is back to deal with Ahab Marsh over in Innsmouth. Keene is insistent on assisting him, to the point of taking a day trip to Innsmouth on his own, have a long conversation with the convenience store clerk, and return to Phelan with intel, only to learn that Phelan already had the information. Phelan and Keene, in disguise, head back to Innsmouth, kills Marsh, and parts ways along the same stretch of the railway. Before parting, Phelan has provided Keene with the whistle, a vial of the mead, and words to summon the creature to transport him to Silanio if he feels his life is in danger. So, Nick, initial thoughts. So, like the first story, 80% of the story, fun read. Again, just like the first one, it, it scratches that Lovecraftian itch. If you're looking for a story that's kind of mimicking that Lovecraft prose, has a lot of the... Especially, it's Shadow Over Innsmouth. This really is Shadow Over Innsmouth Part 2. You thought that the United States Navy arriving outside of Innsmouth and bombarding... Uh, Devil's Reef is a stop to it. Ah, oh, heck no. There is still evil down there. And it's coming back. And Phelan is going to stop it. And so, it, it, I would say this story is even more action-oriented than the first one. And the first one, you know, they, they travel down to Peru. Then they travel to an island and they blow stuff up. This one seems a bit more intimate in its action. A little bit more build-up as they infiltrate Innsmouth, do some do some uh, reconnaissance work. They they put some magic stars around the marsh house, set it on fire. They do some arson here. They roast this. Well, he's not human. He's not an Innsmithian guy. He's just, uh, you know, a pile of tentacled monsters made to be as humanoid as possible, but they cook him alive and 
you know, the fire spreads to other houses. That they're kind of a <laughs> they're they're dead serious in this one, and and I, I like it. It's very it's fast paced, even though there's some long exposition in here, which we'll talk about that in a second because yeah, there is a hilarious exposition scene, but. As with the first story, and we'll talk about this more in depth in a second, it suffers from a main character who's not written the way he should be written. What about you? Um, yeah, I, I like this one, and in fact, um, I liked it better than the first one, and I think that falls on the shoulders of Andrew Phelan. Yes. Just being such a strong, pers- uh, a strong character in this story really propels it forward. It's also got the nostalgia for a reader. Uh, we're returning to Innsmouth, not just once, but twice in this story. Um, of course, uh, King going on his own uh, to do some reconnaissance, and then the second time around uh, with Phelan and King going together. In disguise. In disguise, which I thought was rather ingenious um, because the, dis- the disguises sounded rather intricate, um, Phelan has definitely picked up uh, some uh, skills in his two years that he's been been gone. Um, so that allows us some insight into uh, a glimpse of the goings-on in the esoteric uh, Order of Dagon Church. Um, that I actually, I really enjoyed that scene. I thought it was really interesting. It was very tense. I liked the build-up here with... Uh, the first trip out that's real quick you get that you know that uh concern for our character um he returns safely um and then the the two go out um in disguise and you know of course you're thinking oh i hope they're i hope they're not discovered so um you know there is some concern there that they'll be found out um it's it's a more laser focused story than the Mm -hmm. first one so in this instance, unlike the first one, Derelif gets to have his cake and eat it too in terms of providing structure and expanding. Like you, like you said, you know, we kind of get a bit more glimpse into how does the esoteric order Dagon operate? What's going on in their church? What are their idols? What are their ceremonies and their artifacts and so on and so forth? Those are the nice headways to really expand something when you're trying to build a mythos. And and that's definitely done more adeptly in this story than in story number one, which was a bit more hodgepodgey in that department. Yeah, this one, uh, this this story was written a year later. One of the things that I liked about this story, too, is that uh, Phelan understands the hierarchy of the town and the various uh, families, which I thought was actually interesting. I, it's been a while since I've read uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth, so I don't remember if there was a lot of discussion about the hierarchy of the various families in the town. There's a little. The, the okay. lineage always is like a, an important thing in Lovecraft, yeah. and I guess it would be if you're kind of a xenophobic person. But when you when you speak of that, I, I kept thinking of the game The Sinking City, which was what I was playing a while there, mm-hmm. which doesn't take place in Innsmouth, but you know it's this half-submerged town that's been flooded. There's Innsmithian people running around, but it's a town very... Very much divided into factions based on family. There's a family that's kind of gorilla-ish, and then there's the Innsmouth folk and other rich folk. Um, and it, it just 
playing that game and now remembering it made me have kind of well, fond memories of Shadow and Smith, but it seemed like it also helped, you know, fill in some pieces of this story as well in terms of like setting and just mm-hmm. how things kind of get along. Yeah, and I mean, I think it, it this story is a way of showing that Lovecraft's universe really is this this great big sandbox that you can play in and that you can have ex- expansive stories that don't have to just be a retelling although this is kind of a retelling of the first story the first story um but it works better here and and I think that it also shows that that is also a familiar element with Lovecraft, because he would always tinker, refine, and things like that, and Daryllis is right in that same camp. And that's probably where we can start <laughs> what's kind of the wrong thing with the story. And it is it is more or less a different setting, Insmith versus not Insmith, but it's kind of a beat-by-beat retelling of story number one, where story number one is you had Shrewsbury as, you know, the main kind of head honcho and Pellin learning from him. Now you've got Pellin in the Shrewsbury role and this other guy named Keen, who is now in Pellin's prior role. And it doesn't work. Um, for the simple fact of one, the story should have been Shrewsbury and Pellin coming back together. That way, you wouldn't have this character that's back in the dark again. You kind of got to reset and go from square one. You know, you could tell the same story with those same two characters, eliminate a good chunk of that kind of rehashing, and have a super strong story. And the problem is, in story number one, Pellin, my umbrage with him was, he was portrayed dumber than he is. Story number two, Keen is written as if he's a love interest. <laughs> and the thing is, is had he actually been uh, a non-straight character, I would have been blown away at how progressive that would have been. I would have been like, whoa. But the problem is, he, he's obviously, he is a straight character, but he's written as if he's a love interest. Specifically, I think of movies like Beastmaster 2 and Trancers, and Nick Momotas' book Sabbath, there was this kind of formula in the 80s and 90s where he had, like, kind of a fish out of water. You have someone arriving from a different time or a different planet. They come to the present-day Earth, and the very first person they meet is, like, their helper buddy. So when Jack Death comes to L.A., you've got... I forget her name, Helen Hunt from Mad About Shoe, waiting there for him, and she's going to guide him around, and they're going to become love interests. And the same thing happens in Beastmaster 2. Dar comes to, I think it's New York, and there's a, a punk rocker, new wavy girl, and they become buddies and love interests. Nick Mama Tosses Sabbath, exact same thing. Hex and Sabbath comes to present-day New York. First person he sees is a girl. They become buddy. They become love interests. You see where I'm going with this? This Keen is written exactly like that type of character. Um, Pellin arrives in his his room and board, sleep on the bed, and all of a sudden, boom, they are buddies, and that next step is love interest. I, I tell you, and, and if it was, that would have been awesome, but that's not the case. If anything, I think that Keen was completely infatuated with uh, Felon, and I th- or Felon, and I think that that's part of the problem, but it also reveals was Keen even needed for the story. And you know what? The thing is, 
that could have been a cool character trait to actually kind of play that up, you know, big puppy dog eyes and putting you on a pedestal, and not in a romantic way, but kind of in a role model way. But that doesn't happen like that, because this story, unlike the first one, which unfolds in months, this unfolds in days, like like three days, four days tops, I yeah, think it, was, it is. Yeah, it was a very short period of time. And I just can't see... You know, if I walked into my bed and breakfast or room and board or whatever, and there was a guy I didn't know naked on my bed, you better believe I would have called the landlady and say, get that guy out of here. Not, do you want to borrow my suit? Can I become your accomplice? And, and it's just the handling of it was wrong. And the it, way it, it was weak. It, it was weak, weak. And that's what Keen is. He's a very weak character. He's, he's occupying the same role that Pellin was in story number one, but worse the other thing is 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 uh, my 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 stake with pellin in the first one was you know portraying dumber than he really is this one is his his trope his his one dimensionalness is take me with you i'm not scared i'm not afraid it's going to happen to me no you must stay here i don't want to okay you could tag along and that's what it boils down to while pellin always iterates in the first one how he can't comprehend how he can't comprehend Keen falls back to, I'm not scared. Uh, I, I, no, no does not mean no for me. No means yes, which is, which is not a good banter to live by in today's day and age, folks. No. And and he doesn't add anything. And as you alluded to in your plot synopsis, there is a sequence where where Keen is hanging with the. Uh, the general store owner, the, like the only human in Innsmouth, and they talk and talk, and he gets all the background of the of the town families and weird going on, and all these long expositions, and he goes up to Pellin later, hey, guess what I learned? All this stuff, and he's like, yeah, I already knew that. And I that to me, that I, that's hilarious, and I don't think it was written to be hilarious. I don't think it was meant to be either. No, but, but it, totally not, but outsider looking in it's almost like a parody in in a weird sort of way um because i was laughing uh like what you just did did not matter and through the entire story he doesn't contribute anything even at the climactic end when they're putting the the magic five-pointed stars around the marsh house so he's entrapped in it he's like well i'll do one half the house you do the other and we'll get it done quicker pelin could have done it by himself he was going to do it by himself that you know just by yeah. happenstance of keen being there he tags along he added absolutely nothing to the story we as readers are not a, you know keen is not a good surrogate for us or is surrogate the right word proxy whatever you want to call it as pellin was in the first story he contributes nothing well i think this story could have been more <laughs> interesting maybe if it was shrewsbury and uh Phelan, Bingo. Or, or just Phelan on his own mm-hmm. Coming into town, uh, taking care of business because this, the 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 plot that they that they hatch is basically, hey, we're going to invite Ahab's uh, Ahab Marsh's sisters over, <laughs> for you tea. know, for tea <laughs> at the hotel. Well, meanwhile, I'm going to skip around uh, out the back door and I'm going to go over to the marsh and I'm going to you know lay out these these starf you know symbols and then arson and and light the house on fire there is no need for king ever in that story because even in the church it's not like they're really interacting with each other and in fact uh you know they they both get up they they give their seats to to a couple other people and they go stand at the the wall which is kind of an interesting kind of like 
little observance. And, and King keeps him in the dark on a good chunk of his plan. There, there's a section at the end where he's like, he only gave me like the bare minimum of the plan. He didn't even tell me everything. I'm like, dude, take a hint. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does not need to be part of the story. If anything, what Derelith probably should have done is taken the Seabury Quinn route, have Pelin, Pelin, we're just gonna go with it folks you know be his main character through all his stories that like a superhero he keeps bouncing out on all corners of the world he's basically care because dr shrewsbury he's an old guy you know he's probably been kept alive with a little bit of magic maybe a little charles dexter wardness going on there you know a little bit of dark magic but you know his time's coming to an end pellin i'm gonna pass the torch to you 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 go now and you know, you know the the outer space Kalanio is now his base of operations. He keeps bouncing around everywhere, stopping Cthulhu portals from opening. Every short story is just a different sortie of his to do that. And it, would it be formulaic? Absolutely. Would it have been awesome? Heck yeah! And and I think mm -hmm. at the same time you would still be structuralizing the Cthulhu mythos because that that's his goal. That's Daryl's goal. He wants to do that while at the same time doing something new and unique at least for him because you know lovecraft didn't have uh, a character like that he came kind of close maybe with randolph carter because carter had a couple adventures there but not like this not a not a true hero going out to stop evil or cthulhu or whatever that's the route this could have been and then you know in his adventures he could have ran into a keen that way and keen is a side character that pops up to say, hey, here's some reconnaissance work for you. I already knew that. <laughs> I, I think that um, having a new story would have been good here, and I think... Uh, it's an exciting I, I, story. Yeah, because I think Derelith, once he got away from like retelling Lovecraft stories and actually kind of like uh, sustaining on his own imagination and stories, would have actually been really good. And I mean... These are only the first two stories that I've read of Darylis, so I don't know if down the road he actually does, you know, continue to expand out and away from the uh, source material or not. Well, but, well future podcast episodes, because there's a couple more stories in the Trail of Cthulhu. Yep, so we'll have to, we'll definitely have to do a revisit down the road, but, um, you know, I am reminded of Star Trek when they rebooted that franchise with the with the new uh, crew and I know that while it was cool and great to see Kirk uh, you know uh, Spock um, you know the doc and all them you know coming back to the big screen and I loved it but there was also a lot of criticism that they were just retelling the same prior stories well wrath of Khan was yep definitely you know you have two two cases the first two two movies yeah i loved it you know great nostalgia there but you can only go so far in nostalgia and then you have to basically say i've got to take that step out of the box or you know somewhere else in the box and i think that that's where you know derelict needed to to go. And the funny thing with that analogy is the third Star Trek film was, to me, the, the best of the three because it was its own thing. It felt like its own story, not a retelling of Rathacon. And of course, that was the death knell of that reboot because it didn't perform so well. Yeah, unfortunately. One other kind of thing in nostalgia that you can do your own thing, but also kind of, you know, do the cameos, do the throwbacks to Lovecraft, is the ending of both of these stories is the exact same way Dagon 
and um Oh, Watcher in the Dark End, where all these stories, you know, the main character is, you know, they're writing up their their document until the very end. They're in their room, the window is open, and they're, they're scribbling everything down, and they're like, oh my god, outside the door, the thing is coming to get me, the thing's coming to get me. Maybe put, it's sort of like that sequence in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they're in the, the cave, and they're like, welcome to the castle, ah, why did he even bother to write, ah, on there? He wouldn't write that. And that, <laughs> as funny as it is, that's how a lot of Lovecraft stories end. Uh, Dagon, uh, you know, he writes his final words right as, you know, the monsters come to the door and he leaps to his death. Um, Watcher in the Dark, same way. At least in these two stories. All right, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't kill me quite yet. And, all right, I'm done writing. Let me blow the magic whistle and say the words and I'm out of here. Um, so they, at least they live, unlike in Lovecraft stories. But just the fact that right to the very end, mere seconds from being killed by some sort of cosmic deity, they are just utterly devoted to getting their final words down so so us readers can appreciate and read these works. Well, and that's very important, and I appreciate writers, you know, doing that, so... Well, on that note, I think that kind of concludes us talking about both these August Derelith stories. There's definitely more Derelith down the road. So we're going to take a little break and come back out with show notes and news. Welcome back. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of HB Lovecast Podcast. We also want to extend a thank you to Robert Piatone, who provided the intro blurb for this episode. His current collection, Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares, was part of our discussion when we interviewed uh, Robert late last year. We wish him continued success this year, and do make sure to check out that interview we did with him. Upcoming events... We will have a new episode of Scholars from the Edge of Time streaming on Thursday, March 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you don't catch us live, no problem. The episode will be available afterwards to stream or download. Our next episode of HP Lovecast Presents Fragments will be episode 8. We're going to take a deep dive, pun intended, into last year's science fiction horror film, Underwater, directed by William Eubank and starring Kristen Stewart, Jessica Henwick, and Vincent Castle. That episode will post Sunday, March 21st. And episode 38 marks our first anniversary at rebooting HP Lovecast. We'll have some new features to talk about, and along with analysis of a specialty-selected Lovecraft derivative story. This episode will post Monday, April 5th. And HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And, of course, you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual chapters. And, as always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>